This is Daniel Self, lead pastor of the Orchard Church, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Afterwards, if you would like and subscribe, or if you want more information on The Orchard or to support this ministry, find us at theorchardlife.com. Now know that we are praying for you today, that God would speak to you, and you would have a breakthrough. Well, welcome. We are so glad you're here this morning, Colorado, where it was below freezing today. Some frost around, right? What a beautiful day. This is... Um, if you are here with us or live online right now, this is your last week of being with us at 10 a.m. In that next week, October 1st, starts our new service times of 9 o'clock and 10.30. And I've been preparing you guys for over a month and a half and saying I need a hundred of you at this service to switch to the 9 o'clock. And so far, my mom's the only one that's switched over. Some of you have? Okay, we got a couple more. We have two of you, my mom and Amy Bullock, three. All right, it's like, I feel like an auctioneer. Go on once, go okay. Um, but next week, we have moved to the 9 o'clock and the 10.30, and that's to, we, we do this for a reason. We do this because we want to provide room for our guests and people who will come new to engage with God for the first time or re-engage with God. And so if you're going to make the switch to 9 o'clock, I would ask you to make that your service and go ahead and invite some friends with you next week. If you're going to stay here at the 1030, then invite some friends for next week and let's continue to grow what God is doing. And, and here's another thing. I've been putting off starting Exodus, but I have a message that's been growing in me as I've been preparing for the Ten Commandments in the middle of October. Something else has been coming up and I'm so excited about where we're gonna go. So we're gonna start that next week in October 1st. New time change, new service time, and we're going back into Exodus. And it's a message I would, again, encourage you to invite your guests because it's something that um, is deeply personal and I think it's gonna connect us back to the book of going through Exodus chapter by chapter. And if you're new with us, we've taken a break through the summer to focus on parables and following Jesus. But we are in this ancient book of Exodus to see what it would have for us here in the modern time. So that's all next week, 9 o'clock, 10 a.m., 9 o'clock, 10.30 a.m., and the book of Exodus. Now, last week we talked about a very uh, hard teaching of Jesus about how there was a vast difference between following the rules of a religion and actually following Jesus. We looked at this difficult passage from Matthew, and it, it, it's very interesting. It says that in the end, not everybody who claims to know Jesus will be known by Jesus. The results of this aren't small. And so again, I was telling you, this is a difficult passage, but one as a church I want us to address. Because once we get into this, I want us to, to, to realize there is, there's something vital in here for us to look at our own life. There's a clarifying nature to what we're going to look at today. So Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says this. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the end days. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles in your name. I went to the church in your name. I went, I went to small group in your name. But I'll reply, I, I never knew you. It seems to me there's, there's some sort of difference between religious Christian activity and actually following Jesus. And I read that, and it, it gives me that little bit of... Um, that angst, because we have religious activity in us. We are doing things, but the goal is not just to do things. It is that we would know him, be known by him. 
And this clarifies some questions today. Am I a fan of Jesus or am I a follower of Jesus? Am I part of a religion just conforming or am I in a relationship with Jesus actually transforming? Is this whole thing something I just give lip service to and attend on the side or is this something I am building my life and my eternity on? So what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it actually mean? I don't want to get to the end of my life and find out that all the things that I thought I was doing for him or I was doing for him uh, were not what mattered most, that it was actually knowing him, following him, being known by him. So I'm going to look at some things that Jesus said on this difficult topic of what it means to be a follower of his. Luke 9, 23 Jesus was preaching to a crowd and he said, if anyone wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Now to break this down a little bit, it starts off this way. If anyone, if anyone, not some ones, not certain ones, not the good ones, not the religious ones, if anyone, there's, there's actually no pre-qualification here. It didn't say if, if the ones who've been to Bible college and have the degree want to follow me. It didn't say if those of you who've never, you know, really sinned, you got your little ones, but no real sinners in here. It doesn't say those who voted a certain way. It doesn't say those who are just kind. It says if anyone. There's no pre-qualifiers on this statement of who can be a follower. Yet if we're honest, many of us get hung up unqualifications, pre-qualifications, and disqualifications. Some of us, some of us, we believe we are disqualified from God's goodness, from God's best, or from being a follower of his because of what we've done, what's been done to us, or what we're doing in our life. Most of you here are adults, uh, but all of you may have seen something in the past on TV. It was a marketing campaign. It's still live today, but it was really hot earlier. And that was a marketing campaign for something called Axe Body Spray. Have you heard of this thing? Yeah, Axe Body Spray. It's a cologne of sorts, if you can call it that. It had a big marketing campaign, and it was spraying the sweet scent of Axe Body Spray upon your body would not only cover your bad odor, the commercials let you know it would make you irresistible to the opposite gender. It's like this magic elixir that just does so many things. And before I worked in adult ministry, I worked in youth ministry, where the problems are the same, they're just not as expensive, okay? As a youth pastor, we would take, I mean, busloads, hundreds of kids to camp. And there we'd be in camp for a whole week. I don't know if you've ever been to a middle school youth camp. I had people, I had volunteers who would give up a week of their vacation to go with me to be an adult in a youth camp of middle school, 6th through 8th graders, in the Florida heat, playing outside with not a mom in sight that says, take a shower. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't have to take a shower, because you know what they had? They had Axe body spray. <laughs> no mom, no shower, no problem. It was a synthetic potpourri of some dumpster musk and Las Vegas street fight in a bottle. And it didn't have any finesse of cologne. But sweaty sixth graders would have sprayed upon themselves and it was blunt force olfactory warfare. I mean, it was just like, whoa. In a middle school camp, as they go through the week, there's the sweat and the funk and the aroma that remained on the children. And they tried to cover it with something. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't take a shower. 
They didn't treat the root cause. Instead, they just covered it. And the results were horrifying. It was the scorched earth body odor policy. And I was there in many a cabin. And by Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and you hand them back to their mom and she goes, take a shower. The whole camp needed a good sudsy shower to get off the cause, the, the root of the sweat and the grime. But instead of getting to that root issue, we had a back body spray. What, what needed was a cleansing, but what we chose was a cover-up. And when it comes to Christianity, we're not much different spiritually in some ways than that 6th, 7th, and 8th grade boy's cabin. You see, there are areas of our life that are privately displeasing, pet sins that we kind of hold back, that, that we don't get to the root of. We just want to, you know, cover it up as best we can. And we cover it up by doing things in our spiritual life. We, we go to church. We, we give charitably. We, we talk a, a certain way. Or we, we have good deeds. But in the end, it's all still the essence, like of an axe body spray. It doesn't get to the root issue. It simply covers it up. We, we, we say we believe, yes, Jesus is for anyone, but we don't always behave it. And the truth is because of our private life and our behavior. We know we have private places that are displeasing. This, these private places, they often lead us, if we're honest, to believe we're disqualified from God's best or from following Jesus. Now, if you've been in church long enough, you don't believe it disqualifies you from heaven. You know enough to know you get that. But what does it qualify you here for? Spiritually, we try to smell like church, but without actually following Jesus. And in order to truly open up what it means that anyone can follow Jesus, no matter your sin, no matter your past, no matter your background, no matter your good works or your bad works, I want to look at this, a disciple who wrote the book of Matthew. And this will, this will be striking. His name was also Matthew. What are the odds? The coincidence. But, but no one knew that Jesus was for anyone unlike the disciple Matthew. You see, since he was a disciple, we assume that he was a saint. But without knowing who he is, his past, we miss the cultural con uh, context of this and the humanity and what it can mean for us. Matthew knew what it was to have a past. He knew what it was to have present sin that he thought disqualified him. He knew what it meant to be rejected. Matthew wasn't his given name, and names back then meant a whole lot. And Matthew's name was Levi. Levi is a name steeped in the Old Testament, has cultural importance. It comes from the tribe of Levi. And if you name your son Levi, of the tribe of the Levites, you're saying something. They were this priestly tribe with a proud and pious past. They come from a, a, Levi would come from a long lineage of Levites. You can read back into Exodus, all these things. Now back then, as a good Jewish boy, little Levi, a Levite, he would have strived to be a respected religious scholar. That knowing and doing the right thing would have mattered greatly. He actually would have joined uh, school at a young age, the age of four, and their job was, how they started learning, was to memorize the Torah. They learned to read by reading Genesis. Now, hopefully, if Levi was smart enough and dedicated himself, he could be a scribe in, in the temple, maybe work in the temple as a priest. Perhaps if he was exceptional, 
After he memorized all these things in the school of Beit Sefer by the age of 10, having memorized the entire Torah, he would have qualified to be a Talmudin, that is a disciple of a rabbi. And if he did it correctly, little Levi could grow up and be a Pharisee, respected religious elite, well-schooled, honored, all the things. He would um, be expected to continue to, to move forward in his education and, and work in the temple. But we don't find Matthew, Levi, in a temple. In fact, Levi wouldn't have been accepted in the temple. If he would have tried to go into the temple grounds, they would have sneered at him, mocked him, avoided him. You see, life didn't go the way that Levi's parents would have hoped, probably the way he hoped. He didn't go into the family business, whatever it was, like fishing or something. No, no. Uh, he dropped out of Torah school, no scribe, no disciple. Things have gone really bad for Matthew. Matthew, we learn, went on to be a tax collector. Jewish people were under the rule of the Romans who conquered them. This invading force, and they demanded taxes from the Jewish people. They would get money from the families and the businesses extracting whatever they could to fuel their military and political machine. And who to do it? Who did they get? They got Jewish people who would go between the Romans and their own communities to get this money. The tax collectors filled that role, going between these two groups. Now, they were despised because of this. They worked for the conquering army. They extracted money from families, money that they needed for food, and even if they were honest, they were hated. But tax collectors weren't always honest. They had a reputation that oftentimes they could say you owe and they would just put in whatever. You had to give them whatever they said you owed. And if you didn't pay it, they could report you and you and your family would be arrested and kicked out of your home. They could do whatever they wanted. So if they wanted extra money for themselves, they would get extra money, give the taxes to the Romans and keep whatever they wanted. They, they grew wealthy off their own community. They exploited the Jewish people. Tax collectors were hated. They were feared. You didn't want to get on the bad side of a tax collector. They would double your taxes. They were despised. They caused their families great shame. They didn't have friends in the community. They weren't the Romans, but they took what their own people needed and gave it to them. This was Matthew's job. He was an outcast among his own people. He was ashamed to his family. He was a pariah in his community. That's what he does. So we find him in Matthew 9, 9. It says that Jesus went up on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said to him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Jesus walked up to the tax collector booth, the representation of his kingdom, where people would avoid that you only went there if you had to go there. He walked right up to it and said, follow me. And there sitting in his tax booth, his little kingdom, Matthew, despised by all passing by, he gets this offer of a life that he thought passed him by to leave this life of shame and wealth and to follow a rabbi. And so can anyone be, can anyone follow a rabbi, really? Could anyone do it? Well, did you know in this culture? No, not anyone could. In this culture, rabbis did not go up and ask people to be their disciples. It was the other way around. Uh, you would have to go to school, memorize the Torah, memorize all these things. You would have to, to be learned and known and get a reputation. And then you would go look at all the rabbis and see which one you wanted to follow. And, 
And then, and then you would approach the rabbi and you would say, can I follow you? And he would inspect you and all that you believed and see if you were worthy of following him. But you wouldn't dare go there if you didn't think you had at least a chance of being chosen. But you had to come with everything you had, all that you had learned, all your whole life dedicated to this. Because if, if the rabbi told you no, it was the end of the road for your studies. There was no, in, in this follow me system during Jesus' time, there was no anyone could follow. And Matthew knew it better than most. Tax collectors were not follow me material. And so for Jesus to go up to this reviled and hated tax collector in his booth at work and say, follow me, this was madness. This was scandalous. But it's hard for us to understand just how outrageous this would seem. If you were there watching and following, you'd be like, what is he doing? Why would he go there? Why would he talk? He's asking him to follow him? This would have been scandalous. We're so familiar with Jesus. We're so familiar with his love. We're so familiar with his grace. There's no scandal left in this. I mean, we know, like, anybody can come after Jesus, right? Anybody can go to heaven. We, we, we believe those things, most of us. We may say we believe it, but oftentimes we know our own sins. We know our own private self, and our behavior betrays us. We may not have a tax collector booth, but we have our own little private life that we've created we say we believe that Jesus is for anyone, but we also have a deep understanding of our sin, our kingdom, our life, in our little booth. And for a few of you listening here today, this is for a few of you listening, this is what you need to hear. This is what God wants you to hear today. Listen closely. And that is this, that your past does not disqualify you. Your past does not disqualify you from God's goodness. Your present, whatever you're in right now, does not disqualify you from God's goodness and from following Jesus passionately and truly. Whatever the lows you're in right now, whatever the lows you've been through, Jesus walks up to you, to your booth, to your life, whatever kingdom you've built for yourself, your own sins that you have, whatever you have, and he says, come, follow me. Leave this behind. You're not disqualified. My love qualifies you. My grace qualifies you. Come, follow me. So for some of you to hear today, you need to hear this and know this, that Jesus' invitation is for anyone and your sin does not disqualify you. What about those with secret sins? Anyone. What about ex-cons? Anyone. What about current cons? Anyone. Sexual shame? Anyone. What about the, the addicted, the washed up, the abused, the ashamed, et cetera, et cetera? Anyone. So when Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would follow me, it turns out he actually means anyone. Anyone. Today you might be that one that wants to follow Jesus. You are that anyone. You know what your present and past has. And Jesus is calling you today, like he called Levi, like he called Matthew, to leave that life, to leave the life you've created, that little booth that's identified you, and begin to step out into following him into a new life. No matter the condition of your current circumstances, you qualify to be a Jesus follower. But if the rest of us are honest, 
we don't really struggle with thinking that anyone qualifies. Some of us have been around church long enough that even despite all of our sin, we know enough to know that Jesus, he died on the cross, he forgives sin, and someday I'll be in heaven. And that's, that's what we've banked our life on. We've said a salvation prayer at some point in our life. We've been to enough church. We were maybe raised in a Christian family. Whatever it was for you, that you would say, hey, I get that. I get that. It's not that anyone that you think about anymore, you, you, you get it. I, I'm, I'm one. I, I make it. We don't take issue with the anyone in Luke 9, 23, but if we keep reading that sentence, there may be some words in there that are for us. He says this, if anyone would follow me. Follow. This word here indicates pursuit. Now, it's hard to, it's hard to, indi- like to, to preach about pursuit and following without talking about romantic love. In romantic love, that's where we truly see this blossom. And perhaps you, you, you were dating somebody. But you're in, you actually, do you remember, if you've been married for a long time, do you remember dating that person? Do you remember? Do you remember when you'd like sneak over and leave a note on their car? Write them a poem? Or like, remember like when you would take those long road, like I see wives like going, you remember that? <laughs> no, no. No, no. Do you remember when you would like wear the matching sweatshirts to the national park? Ugh. Do you like remember the thing? Remember the things you would do for love? Remember you would leave early in the morning and drive on a road trip just to be there and see them for just a few hours, surprising them. Oh wow, the things we would do. Perhaps you've been married for a long time, and and for you, true love is this morning when uh, you decided to clean up something after your spouse in the bathroom and didn't even mention it to him. I mean, that's love right there. Remember when love was outrageous and wild? And remember the things people would do for love? I mean, have you seen the new YouTube videos on proposals? Have you seen these proposals on YouTube these days? I'm so glad they didn't have those back in our day. I mean, some of them are so, I'm crying. Oh, I wish I would have done that. Love causes us to do wild things. Love leads to pursuing. Love in and of itself leads to action. An internal reality of love leads to an external behavior of loving, of pursuing. Love leads to pursuit. And this pursuit will lead us to do wild things in the name of love. But looking back at our relationship with Jesus, when was the last time you had any wild story as a result of your love for him? When was the last time you had a pursuit story of how you chose Jesus over something you really wanted? When was the last time your, your love of Jesus that caused that, that pursuit that looked wild and outrageous to others? How are you pursuing Jesus? That's an indication of your love. What does your following Jesus look like? Do you follow him with abandon, willing to give up whatever, whenever for him? You see, the disciples, they left everything for for his sake. When was the last time you left something behind for him? When was the last time you said no to something because you were saying yes to him? You see, most often, it's not that we don't want to follow Jesus. It's that, you know, we just don't want it to cost us anything. Our pursuing Jesus stories, if we're honest, probably aren't that wild. 
Love by nature should have a passionate external indicator. If there is love in your heart for someone, it translates into action, into words, into a lifestyle. Love causes us to act toward that person in love. Love is an inward reality that expresses itself in an outward indicator. I mean, do you love your team? People who love their team, they wear their jersey, they yell things, they, they go crazy, they paint their face. You love your dog? I mean, we, 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 have you seen a, a perfectly normal person talk to a dog? They lose all semblance of sanity. Love will cause you to do strange things. You love your spouse. You love your boyfriend, girlfriend. Your love is often revealed and expressed in actions, in service, in gifts, in words. Internal love, if passionate, has external indicators. So what are the outside, outer signs and indicators of your internal love? What are the signs that you have a passionate pursuit of Jesus? See, many, many of us would love to follow Jesus in an inspired way. Um, but there's something else at work. And it's, I believe, a cancer in the church of our time. Do you know the opposite of love is not hate? The opposite of love is apathy. If you've ever been in a loving relationship where apathy has been present, you've felt the sting of that. It is the opposite of love. And apathy is something that has grown in our church culture, in our Christianity. Apathy is something that destroys our passionate pursuit of anything spiritually. See, we don't often pursue, we don't, um, often pursue Jesus not because we don't believe in him. We believe in Jesus. We believe in him. But we have apathy. Apathy is the killer of the passionate pursuit stories. You've heard of, the, of sloth, right? This, one of the seven deadly sins. Sloth isn't a word we really use unless you work at a zoo. I mean, it's just not a cultural, common nomenclature, right? I mean, how can even sloth be a sin? I mean, taking it easy. You know, going to the beach, sleeping in, a hammock, the altar of sloth. I mean, what, what's, what are they getting at? What's sloth? If you look at the word sloth, the word actually is acedia. And, and while sloth may be appropriate for an older culture, it hardly captures what acedia looks like in our day and age. You see, acedia means spiritual apathy. It means apathy. Spiritual apathy is knowing, knowing that God loves you. Spiritual apathy is knowing that Jesus died and rose again. It's, it's, it's having said a prayer maybe and walked down an aisle or even gotten baptized and, and knowing all these things and then, meh. It's neat. I'm not gonna passionately pursue that. Revelation 2, verse four through five, Jesus himself discusses this in talking to a church. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. That's him. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Notice there it says you don't love me or each other. Love God, love people. You don't do the basic of love God, love people like you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the things you did at first. Oh, you might know all about love God, love people. You might not know all about God. You might believe all about it and you can break it down and break it down, but your heart is disengaged completely forsaken our first love of God, fallen from where we started so passionately to an apathetic, disengaged place. Could that describe any of our walk with Jesus? 
What was such a rush at one point? What, what was such a joy or a powerful invitation, a calling, a moment, and now acedia, apathy, coasting. And according to the text here, the prescription for this is to turn back to Jesus and do the things you did at first. And what does that mean? Well, if you've been married for a while and you've ever gone to see a marriage counselor, which if you haven't, I would highly recommend. Amy and I believe that counseling is, is beneficial for everybody and anybody. It's not a mark of shame. It's a healthy thing. And so I would say, everyone, get some counseling. <laughs> When you've been married for a while and you sit there in the marriage counselor's room and um, you've been coasting in some areas, the passion of those dating years has waned. The intensity of the wedding and the honeymoon is different. What do you do? The prescription is start to date again, right? You heard that? You buy the flowers again. You write that love note again. You begin to engage in the activities that got you into the marriage in the first place. You begin to go back and do the things you first did before. You go out and spend time with that person because believe it or not, you got married because you like spending time with them. So get a babysitter and go spend time together. The same is true with our spiritual walk. You know, with Jesus, we, we turn back to him. The word in the other translation is repent, and we want to repent means to turn back, ask forgiveness, and go a different way. We, we turn, we begin to walk toward him, and then we go back to what we may have done at the first. Did you used to have a time with God in the mornings, reading his word that charged you, that filled you? When did you stop that? Why did we stop? Go back to those things. Did you used to turn on certain music that would fill your heart and encourage you in a way that maybe the radio or other podcasts didn't? Did you used to, to journal? And write down your journey to God. Did you used to have a mentor, someone you would meet with who would challenge you on these things, speak to you and draw the best out of you? Did you used to pour into others? Did you used to, to work with the youth or work with the children and you discipled other people? That's a vital part of what it means to, do, to grow. <coughs> have you been a part of a small group in the past where you were doing life with people and the, the energy, spiritual energy and the, the, the excitement that that did? Did you serve and lead? What about going back to some of those things that we did before when we were so passionate? For some of you, I'm talking to you, that we have forsaken our first love and it's time to go back, to turn back to those things. And the bottom line is, what are the outer indicators of your internal followership and passion for Jesus? If someone looked at your life, could they tell that you loved him? If you give me your calendar and give me your bank account, which you don't have to, I'm not saying, I, but if you did, we could tell your priorities very quickly. And you can see where we invest our time and our money would reveal what we value most in our life. Our recreation, our vacation, our own selves, whatever it was. Look at your time, look at your bank account, look at your life, and what does it reveal? If someone were to look at your life, is there any outer indication that you have an internal loving pursuit of Jesus? Is there any indication that my passionate pursuit of Jesus is real and authentic? That I have some love of Jesus that is expressed in some wild ways as love, love often does? Is there a love that makes me look ahead to the future beyond 
what is pressing and present and the busyness that demands my attention. That in this, this life, I can spend everything that is temporary and temporal on God's behalf because I know this isn't my final destination. I, I can become to remember that because of my deep love for Jesus and what is to come, I can actually begin dying to the materialism and the busyness of this culture. I can begin to focus on eternal things instead of temporal things that I can't take with me anyway. I can begin to see that people, uh, with, people begin to see that as I follow Jesus, I, he, he, I believe he, he walked the earth, he died, he, he rose again, and that through his sacrifice, I'm a new creation. Do you, do you remember the days when being a new creation was a new thought? That when you believe in Jesus, the old is past, you're not defined by your sin, you're defined by his son? To, to, be re, to be reawakened to the fact that we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is come. That we are forgiven. That we're not conforming to religion, we're being transformed in relationship. Through Jesus, that we have entered into the family of God and we are adopted sons and daughters of the Most High King. That we have risen up and we have renounced our earthly citizenship because we are citizens of heaven, as the Bible says. And our souls have a king first and foremost that this is not our home, we're passing through. And because of that, nothing in this world can truly own us because we've given all things to him. That we would understand that people matter to God and because of that, they matter to us. And we live a life in such a way that people would see him and who he is. That they would see that Jesus died for them and rose again and they could have new life do, you, do we want to live a life that would have these wild, crazy Jesus stories? And I remember like, I don't want wild Jesus stories in my life. I don't want those things. But he's asking some clarifying questions here. Our love of God will cause us to have some decisions and outward indicators that reveal what we love most. So what would it take to follow Jesus again with that conviction and that, that passion? And this is a hard one for me. I mean, I was saved. I said the prayer of salvation when I was seven years old, about three miles from here over on the CRMS road. I've lived a lot of life between that, that moment, that little boy and this preacher. I've given up on church. I've given up on God in between there and now. I've given up on myself. There were times where there was no passion. I was just all apathy. And so when I ask what would it take to return to Jesus with passion and conviction, this is something I wrestle with. What would it take to return to that deep love before apathy and busyness in life took the reins and took control? You know, Paul, he was someone who wrote most of the New Testament and a lot of it he wrote while chained to the wall. He was in jail for his faith and he writes this next sentence from a jail cell. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to live a life worthy of your calling. I beg you to live a life worthy of the calling that Jesus has put upon you. I beg you to live a life here and now worthy of the great calling that Jesus put upon your life. And what is that calling? It's the same calling that Levi, that Matthew had in his tax collector booth in the, in the walls of his old life, Come, follow me. Come, follow me. 
live a life worthy of your calling. Jesus is for anyone. And anyone's can come be a part of a passionate pursuit of him. As we end in communion, Amy, will you bring me a communion cup? As we end in communion, oftentimes we can take communion with apathy. Thank you. We can take communion with apathy. And don't, don't take yet. But this is the symbol of our Savior's death and what he gave up in his passionate pursuit. This is, this is a symbol of passionate pursuit. And so let's not take this with apathy today. Let's take this remembering that this cracker here is the symbol of his body. And I always take it and I break it because his body was broken. It was broken for us. And so Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken, that you were obedient even to a cross, that, that your passionate pursuit of your father had you say yes even unto death. So we take and eat. And this is the symbol of his blood, of a new covenant. Blood that said he can heal our sins and heal our bodies. The blood that was shed for us, take and drink. Orchard, may we be a church of imperfect people struggling with our own self, but who have come to a place of internal passion to pursue Jesus in practical ways. May we, the orchard, be a people who those out there can know, man, they truly do love God and love people. And they're not fake about it, not judgmental about it. They're real about it. Orchard, may we be a church who follows Jesus, who decides to say yes, who de decides to follow Jesus no matter what we come. So as we go into worship, and as you stand with me, let us sing this song, not just with our lips, but let us follow him in worship by singing this with our heart and with our soul. Let's stand. Thank you for joining us today. And if you have any other questions or need support, you can contact us at theorchardlife.com. You can help us by liking and subscribing to today's podcast. And we pray that God blesses you.